We're going to open the Bible to um, a passage in a book of the Bible called 1, uh, 1 Chronicles, the last chapter of 1 Chronicles. You'll find it on page 573 if you have the brown Bible in your hands. And we're going to start a new series um, through this chapter, which, just to place it chronologically, it marks the end of David's reign, and really the handover to his son Solomon. And uh, let's just read the first five verses of this chapter. Chapter 29, verses 1 to 5. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon... My son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. And the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. He's talking about the prospective building of the temple, which he here calls God's palace. So I provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, and timony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. Three thousand talents of gold of the gold of Ophir, and seven thousand talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Let's begin by just thinking about this question. Why are we looking at this chapter? What relevance does it have to us in 21st century London in this little church plant here in in Waterloo. Well, you can approach it from this angle. One of the questions that the Bible is seeking to answer, um, one of the threads that runs through from the beginning all the way through to the end, is the question, how can God and man live together again and know each other and enjoy fellowship with one another? And one of the answers that the Bible keeps pushing to us is this idea of God coming to be with his people in a place, in a special place, in a temple. And it's, it's a thread that you see running all the way through the scriptures. So right at the beginning, when God made Adam and Eve, and he created the world, he created the Garden of Eden. And you may not have looked at it this way before, but one of the ways you can understand what the Garden of Eden represents is that it's a kind of temple. It's only a portion, a small portion of the whole planet, but it's a temple where there's a priest and a priestess, Adam and Eve, who are ministering God's presence to the earth, to the planet. And of course, as the story unravels and Adam and Eve fall into sin, they're separated from one another. God says, you can't live with me and I I won't be known by you. You won't have life. That's how he puts it. And so he pulls pulls away. He extracts himself, as it were, from, from, um, from the garden and from the earth and withdraws so that Adam and Eve are left alone. And as the generations move on, God then selects another people. And then he, he begins to, to, to enact his plan to re-inhabit the world with his presence. It's, so you go from a Garden of Eden to 
to the tabernacle which the people of Israel build. Later on, it, moves, it becomes the temple. That's the point at which we're transitioning here from a tent to a, a temple, Solomon's temple, which is yet to be built, which would become one of the seven wonders of the world. And um, it just cause everyone who sees it to gasp with amazement and the presence of God would be there in awesome power. That gets destroyed and rebuilt. And as time goes on, and the story unfolds, you get to the New Testament, and then the temple is Jesus himself. How is God going to dwell with man? Well, he comes in human flesh, and he's the temple. And then you move on, and he ascends to heaven, and he, he leaves instead his people on the planet, the church, as the temple, which is the point at which we join the story. So you've gone from garden to tabernacle to temple to Jesus to Jesus' body, the church, and that's the point of history that we, we now live. And then it's all going to culminate, it says at the end of the book of Revelation, when the heavenly Jerusalem will come down and the whole earth essentially will become the temple of God, which was God's intention from the very beginning with the Garden of Eden. So the story comes full circle. Now, the reason then why I wanted to look at this passage is because of its significance within that kind of storyline that we're looking here at well, we can look at it at a few level, levels. At one level, it's, it's the point of handover where David has decided that he felt, took it in his heart to build a temple, but it wasn't really his job. God said, you can't do it. Your son will do it instead. And so there's this transition from one generation to the next as Solomon is entrusted with this holy calling to build the temple. And I, when I think about what the church is, because it's an ongoing structure, it's never finished until Christ returns. It's as though we're constantly living in this point of handover from one generation to the next, just as David was passing on to Solomon. The gospel could be lost in a single generation if the church doesn't take on its calling from those who've gone before us, the cloud of witnesses, to keep building the temple of God, to be the church for the next generation. And so you see these, this kind of parallel between their situation and what, where we stand poised in history, really. But also for us as a church plant, we're a kind of mini temple. You could think of it that way. Wherever you see the gathering of God's people, you see an expression of the temple of God. And so we are called to, to get on board with building a place where God will be honored and worshipped. This is why I wanted to draw from this passage. Some of the huge themes which hit us here, which are so relevant to what it means to be the church today. It touches on themes like today, we're going to be thinking about what it means to be consecrated. It touches on generosity. It touches on leadership and worship and integrity and holiness. It hits some of these enormous abiding ideas that ought to be at the top and foremost of the minds of every generation of Christians, conscious as you ought to be of your responsibility before God to be on board with the building of God's house, his temple on the earth. So that, as the scriptures will say, it will be fulfilled that the whole earth will be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's God's ambition for this planet. And that's what church planting is all about. Now, I had another motivation in wanting to, to get into this chapter with you, that when, when we um, sort of began to tell people that we were going to be involved in planting a church back in April of, of last year, a friend of ours um, called Alex Hawke, who's 
a missionary in Cambodia, heard about it online, and uh, he'd gone in touch with me, and he, he'd been praying, and he felt that God had given him a number of things that came out of this chapter um, as sort of signal ideas or words to us as a church plant. And I've been waiting and sitting on it for a little while, but I thought this was the time now where we could get into it and really uncover all that it would say to us at this very early stage of where we're at in our journey. So our focus today is just going to be on these first five verses, and particularly where it climaxes in this last verse, where David is calling for something. He's calling for action. This is where, if he were in the room today, you couldn't ignore the call on your life. He says, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? It's a nationwide thing. It's involving all of God's people. It's a voluntary thing. But it's a, it's a thing that involves wholehearted commitment. And that's what we want to kind of uncover and explore as we dig into these verses. And in particular, I want to show you the four motives that David gives for the whole of Israel to get on board with the building of the temple. Motives that ought to resonate with our hearts um, as being just as relevant to us today in the building of Christ church. Here, let me tell you these four things then. The first is that God has given you weak leaders. That's how he begins. It's a surprising way to start, isn't it? In verse 1, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. Now, I don't know how you might react to this if it were your dad talking about you like this, but I would think it would be pretty discouraging, pretty frustrating, and pretty humiliating to be called out in front of the entire nation, or at least all the leaders and representatives of the nation, and for, for your dad to then announce that you are totally incompetent and that you need help. That is essentially what's happened here. Few things could possibly be more embarrassing than, than a parent holding the hand of their child. You know, it's like if you went to a job interview and your, 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 your mum or your dad came along with you and sort of had a little word with the interviewer just beforehand. You know, he's a little bit shy, just be nice to him, that kind of thing. It feels a bit like that when, when, when David stands up and says, my son Solomon, he's young and inexperienced. And it gets worse because this word inexperienced, if you look at, at, the, at the meaning of it, it means, it means weak, it means soft or tender. It basically, he's saying he's a complete softy. He's never, he doesn't have calloused hands. He's got soft hands because he's never done a day's work in his life. He's been pampered in the palace. He's never had responsibility. He is a soft. It's the same word that's used of guys who, when they're anticipating going to war, um, might be fearful and decide not to go. That's the word that's used here. He said, he's saying he's totally unsuitable in a certain sense. But God's chosen him for this task. And... I would say, although that would be enormously discouraging in any normal situation, what it does is actually forms a springboard to amazing fruitfulness in the life of Solomon for two reasons. The first, as you see in the, in the unfolding of this chapter, is that the whole of the people of Israel rally around. Instead of thinking, David, what are you doing? Like, why are you giving us this, this son when we could have had one of your other sons, like Absalom, who was fantastic and amazingly good-looking with flowing hair and everything. And they could have had him. And they say, no. But instead of reacting in that way, the, the whole people gather, they rally around, they look at David, at Solomon's incompetence, and they think, we can help. I've got things to offer. I've got skills, or I've got 
material goods or I've got leadership abilities. I've got something to offer to make sure that Solomon accelerates and excels in his leadership of the nation. That's one reason why it springboards. The other reason is that Solomon himself, rather than reacting in that way that I think any one of us would react if we were embarrassed like this, he, he actually takes it upon himself to, to acknowledge his weakness. So when you read into the next chapter, which is the beginning of two chronicles, um, Solomon has this exceptional and unusual encounter with God in a dream. And God says, I'll give you whatever you want. And instead of asking for riches and honor and glory and all those kinds of things, he says this quite simply in verse 10 of the first chapter, give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great. He says, I am overwhelmed by the task in front of me. And the the thing I most need from you, God, is wisdom in order to know how to lead this people. So being humiliated by his dad doesn't turn out to be such a bad thing. By the way, um, when you get to the next generation and his son Rehoboam, who becomes a disaster, he's the reason that you end up with a separation, split in the kingdom. Uh, It's the same word that's said about him. The same word that's translated inexperienced about Solomon is used of Rehoboam, but as the reason why he's so stupid in the way he rules and causes the split. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 13. Now, what does this mean to you today? Why am I drawing attention to this fact that leaders can be incompetent wallies? Well, the reason is this, that it's no less true today that God has put in his church weak men to lead. Any leader worth their salt, in fact, is going to be aware of their incompetencies and deficiencies and weaknesses. And in a sense, in the Bible, it becomes a kind of qualification for leadership. And then in the same way that, it, that, that the people of Israel are then put in a, in a position to choose, what are you going to do? We're always put in that position when we, when we join churches, when we're part of church plants, when we see um, the weaknesses of the leaders that God's put over us. I would say that you have a choice always when you're in a church. And I'm not just talking about myself, by the way. I'm talking about any church. It doesn't matter where you go. I don't care. You always are going to find things where there are, there are blind spots and weaknesses and deficiencies in leadership in any church. And you always have a choice. You can either, on the one hand, become a critic and become part of the problem. Or you can look at the weaknesses of your leaders and think... What opportunity is there for me to compensate and to be part of the body? Because before team was ever a kind of catchphrase coming from all the American business books, it was a concept that was rooted in the Bible. When God made Adam and Eve, well, he made Adam first, and he said it's not good that the man should be alone, so he made a helpmate for him, Eve, a perfectly complementary partner in the work that was to unfold. It's mirroring, in fact, God himself as Trinity, and then it flows into the whole of the way God runs his world and how he puts people in communities and in families and in the church. And why Paul then says that the church is like a body where every part is essential to the running of this thing. And we can't do away with one part or another. This ought to be a massive motivator for you then when you look at the weakness of leadership in this church or in any church you're a part of, now or in the future, to ask yourself, given the incompetencies of my pastor or pastors, 
What is it that I'm called to offer? That's what David was asking these people today and what I'm asking you. What is it that you, what's perhaps just the one thing that you can bring to the table? That's the first motivator, that God has given you weak leaders. The second is this, that God has given you examples to follow. So as the verses unfold, listen to how David talks. He says, I have... Verse 2, I provided for the house of my God so far as I I was able. The gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver. Now, down in verse 3, moreover, in addition to all that I provided for the holy house, I have treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. So David begins his plea for the people of Israel to, to give and to get on board with this by telling them how much he's given. And it seems that he's given in two ways. He's given partly out of the the national treasury, the taxes, or whatever whatever wealth they had in government. He's given out of that, and he's given out of his personal pocket. This is no prime minister who just wants to raise taxes. This is a guy who who is willing to personally part with his own cash and invest it. But it presents us with a problem, doesn't it? Isn't this a little bit boastful of David to announce to the whole of Israel how much he's given to the building of the temple. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know that um, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, Jesus addresses this very thing when he says that when you give, you shouldn't be like those hypocrites who blow trumpets before them as they, they give away to the needy. Um, he's saying, in effect, that they're giving not really for the needy, they're giving for themselves because they want to look good before people. And so he says, you shouldn't let your left hand see what your right hand is doing when you give to the work of the kingdom. And so you might think, well, isn't David guilty of just basically drawing attention to himself in a way that's boastful and unhelpful here? I think that there's, when Jesus is teaching this, you've got to get back to the motive that he's, he's, he's really addressing He's addressing that, that desire for the praise of man. And one thing you see all through David's life, in his Psalms, the transparency of his, his spiritual life that's laid out in the Psalms, is that he, he doesn't want to whitewash his life. He's not interested in the praise of man. He's only interested in the fame of God. I remember listening to um, a, a talk by Rick Warren, who's a pastor of one of the largest churches in the States called Saddleback. He planted that church a few decades back. And when he started, he had nothing. And he and his wife just got one of those U-Haul sort of uh, trailers, and they drove to Orange County, and they planted the church by gathering about 11 or 12 um, people who weren't Christians at the time and saying to them, we're planting a church, do you want to help us? And it just began to grow and grow. But one of the things he tells in the story, by the way, just as an extra element here, Rick Warren has written a book called The Purpose Driven Life, which is... Um, one of the best-selling books of all history. Um, one of the, it's in the, the list of the top-selling books, hardback books in all history. And so the guy has gone from having nothing to having one of the biggest churches in the world and having no money to having more money than you could possibly know what to do with. And as a result, I guess he's been a bit of a, 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 a magnet for criticism. And he was talking in this, in this, in this message he gave um, on the theme of integrity. He was talking about how from, from the earliest days, he began to tithe to the church. So even when they had very little, they gave 10% of their income to the church. And then year on year, he and his wife Kay would increase that percentage at a time. They would just pray together and say, how much can we afford to increase our giving 
So 12%, 13, 14. And never in the opposite direction. Always as a greater proportion of their giving. And I was sat there thinking, like, why is he telling us this? I remember um, my father-in-law gave a, a big sum of money to his church for a building project. And my sister-in-law, when she heard, or when he told her, um, just laughed in his face and said, you just lost your reward in heaven because you just told me, which is, of course, <laughs> referring to what Jesus said. And you think, well, why is Rick Warren telling us this? And he began to talk about how when he'd earned enough money from his books, um, he then did a reverse tithe where he lived off 10% and gave away 90% and he repaid every penny that he'd ever earned from the church in the whole history of his working for the church that he planted. Now, I'm not making that kind of commitment today, by the way. But um, the reason was because he wanted to put before people, firstly, I guess, a defense of his character where he gets criticized. But secondly, he was preaching to pastors and he was saying, this is an example And I took away from it an immense challenge. And I think that's exactly what David's doing for his people. He's saying, look how much I'm personally invested in this project. Now, what does that mean for you when you think about what it means to follow an example? I think that, I mean, it becomes pretty obvious when you think about it, that examples are one of the most powerful instruments for change in your life, aren't they? It can work negatively or positively. I was reading the other day how um, there was a study in 2007 by these professors in, in a couple of American universities that showed how the people you hang out with can massively influence your habits like smoking and eating and drinking and all these kinds of things. And they said, if you have an obese friend, you are 57% more likely to be obese yourself, which explains why I have so few friends. And uh, they also... So they were talking about this kind of this negative effect. But when you read the Gospels, of course, you're seeing the flip side of that, that Jesus knows that as important and vital and foundational as teaching is, it's also modeling that changes people's lives when they see how to live and they begin to imitate. Now that becomes important for you on a couple of levels. It becomes important for you partly because people are always watching you and you need to be an example. We all need to be an example. We're all discipling each other, whether we mean to or not. Just having interactions with each other, we're discipling one another. That's how the church works. It's not always formal relationships. It's just rubbing shoulders with other people. You shape each other. Your passions become their passions. Your priorities become their priorities. But it also means this, that when you, when you are wanting to grow in Christ, you need to find models to follow. The Bible is a storybook because God wants to lay before us the stories of men and women of faith that we can emulate their example and learn from their mistakes. That's why it's not just a collection of laws and sayings. It's one of the reasons why, anyway. This is why I think it's so vital for Christians. If you're wanting to be engaged in the work of God in the earth and make a difference... Don't forget that hundreds of generations have preceded you. And that their works and their life stories are yours for the taking. Read about the dead guys and learn from them. Guys like David set themselves as an example for us for a reason. I found no more inspiration in the Christian life than in reading biographies and looking at the lives of men of God who set a pattern 
that you don't see around you very often. And I'd also say this, that besides doing those things, it's helpful to find people in your life who will model for you what it means to be a man or woman of God and get close to them. So God's given you weak leaders, but he's also given you great examples. Thirdly, God has given you ample provisions. This also comes from these verses where David just talks about these immense, this immense wealth and treasure that he's already put into the fund for the building of the temple. And it presents with this, this question in my mind. If, if you were there and you heard about all that had already been given, do you think you would be demotivated or more motivated to give to the work of the temple? It seems that it has the effect on them that not only are they learning from his example, but they take heart, they take hope from the fact that there is already an immense treasure and resource and storehouse built up for the work that's about to take place. In other words, they know this project cannot fail. Whenever you see the, sti- the kick um, starter campaigns online, there comes a tipping point at which people think this is going to succeed. And then lots of investments begin to flood in. And it's a bit like that here. David says, I've already put up the, the mass of what's needed for the temple. Please, guys, come and top it up. Come and get involved. The reason why I draw attention to this is because I think that this, this, is, this is how Christ draws us into his work of building his temple. That before you and I were ever a twinkle in our mother's eye, Christ had already laid down, like a guarantor, he laid down the resources necessary for the completion of his temple on the earth before his return. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. There is nothing more certain on this planet than that the church of God will succeed. And history is always bearing that out as a fact. And you and I can react to that and think, well, in that case, we don't need to get involved. Or you can react and think, in that case, I want to be involved in the greatest thing that could ever be achieved on this planet. So Jesus doesn't look at us and, on the one hand, say, it's all on you. Because then we'd be hopeless, wouldn't we? If we thought it was all down to us to build this thing. And nor does he say, it's okay, I've got it all covered, I don't really need you. Instead, he says, it's all on me, but I'm inviting you to be involved too. And the New Testament shows us how he calls people to be his co-workers and involved in important and powerful and dynamic ways in the building of his temple. Let me show you a few verses that bear this out. In 1 Peter 4, Peter talks like this. He says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. He's saying you need to give yourself to the work of serving God's people, but do it by the strength that God supplies. In other words, there are ample provisions already laid up for the work that you're called to do. In 1 Corinthians 15, you see the same kind of idea coming through in the way that Paul talks about um, his own work. Let me just see if I can find the verse. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. He says, Now, the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, 
Though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. So you see, all the way through, that just as David laid up ample provision, but then the people were called to come alongside and to give and to contribute and to be part of the building, so it is in the building of Christ's church. Jesus has given everything we need for the building of his church, but he still calls you and invites you to be a part of it and to give what you have, to bring, just like the widow, bringing her, 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 her might to the temple and saying, I want to contribute. It's like that. And God doesn't miss anything that's given for the work of his temple. You might think, well, that sounds like a kind of patronizing way to treat us in one sense. I remember when I was decorating, our, when we were decorating our house, we got a group of about eight or ten people to come and help paint the thing. And one of our dear friends, Michelle, um, from Cape Town was there. And to be honest, she is genuinely, practically not gifted. She's, she's, she's in certain ways she is, but when I say practically, I don't mean she's practically not gifted. I mean she's, she's gifted, but not in practical ways. So she, um, she was... We basically gave her a bucket of paint and a paintbrush and put her in a cupboard to paint. And then we just, uh, we'd walk off and then every so often we'd open the cupboard and find her on her knees inside the cupboard painting. Great job, Michelle. Keep going. You think, well, is it like that? Does Jesus take us on in a patronizing way and just give us a little paintbrush and a bucket of paint and push us in a cupboard? And I say, no, it's not like that at all. Because when God gives you the dignity of being his co-worker, he promises to reward every ounce of labor that's given to his kingdom. And every gift that's part of the building of his worldwide temple on the earth. Why does he do that? I think that in part it's because Christ wants to restore to us our created purpose. That's what we lost at the fall when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They lost their sense of purpose of bringing God's rule to the planet. And it's what we gained when Christ brought us back into the church and gave us a part and a function in his body in this temple. I'm not sure that outside of Christ you can really know meaningful life. You can put meaning into your life. But is that really a meaning that will last beyond death? I don't know if you ever ask yourself that question if you don't know Jesus. Do you ask, is what I'm doing with my life going to have any lasting value? Or am I just doing what seems to be valuable to me and society at this moment in time? But when Jesus gives us the dignity of being in his people and then giving us a function in the body and a part of building his temple, he is restoring what the meaning of life is about living your life to the glory of God, offering your gifts on the altar, offering your possessions on the altar and saying, it is all for you, Jesus. And it might be a measly amount in comparison to what Jesus has already laid up like David's treasure. But Jesus takes note of every penny. That's the third thing. He's given you ample provisions already, but he invites you on board. And lastly, God has given you an opportunity to be involved in, in the greatest work on earth. This is what David is trying to say to these people. He says it in verse 1 when he says that, The palace will not be for man. No, he says, the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. And then in verse 5, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? He's putting before them the highest possible 
ambition and motive for what it means to be involved in the temple. This is a great work, he says, and it is for the Lord. The right response... In being invited to be part of the greatest work on the planet, the right response might be one of a sense of unworthiness, you know. The people knew that David had been disallowed by God from, from doing this job himself. God had said, you're a man of war, and your son is going to build the temple instead of you. So even the mighty David isn't worthy of, of this task of building the temple. And Solomon feels that unworthiness himself a couple of chapters later when he says that the house I'm to build will be great for our God is greater than all gods but who is able to build him a house since heaven even highest heaven cannot contain him who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him who am I he says And this is the amazing thing about what David is calling the people to do and what Jesus is calling us to do in the building of his church. This is the greatest work that we could do with our lives. I'm not saying, by the way, that other work is unimportant or insignificant. But I'm saying that all work, when it's done to the glory of God, is part of the building and the expansion of his kingdom authority on the earth. And that that's how you should live your life. But who is worthy for such a thing? On the one hand, you want to say, listen, and I think rightly, all of us should hold a hand up and say, I'm not worthy. And it may be true that you're sat here today, and I guess in hearing me call for greater passion and commitment and consecration to the work of God, you're thinking, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not worthy. You know how I live. You know the sin in my life. You know the weakness of my walk with Christ. And I think on one level that's utterly true. It's true of me. But look at this passage in 1 Timothy. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful or worthy, appointing me to his service. You think, well, that sounds, again, a little bit boastful, doesn't it? Paul's saying, I was so great that Christ wanted me to be involved. And that's not what he's saying at all, because in the next verse he says, though formerly... I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy. And he goes on to talk about the mercy he's received from Christ. He says that Christ showed him mercy in order to display his mercy and his grace to the rest of mankind. So that you, Christian. If you are a Christian, no matter how weak you think your walk with Christ is, you ought to look at Paul. And you ought to see that if Christ can take a man from the moral gutter, thought he was fantastic, but in reality he was a blasphemer and a persecutor of Christ's church. If Christ can take such a man and then put on him the dignity of being one of his own apostles in the building of his church, how much more can Christ do it in you? You may have discounted yourself a long time ago from having any significant role in God's kingdom. 
doing anything of lasting worth or value for him. And so you've set your sights low, your ambitions low for what you want to do for Jesus. And I'm just calling you and saying, the opportunity is always there to get on board with the greatest work on the planet. And I don't just mean church. I mean a much bigger view of what Christ and his calling can be. But it does mean church at the same time. When the passage comes to a close, or to a climax, you could say, before it goes into the end of David's speech anyway, David then says, who then? He's given us these four motivations. And he says, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself to the Lord? Let me just round off with three very brief observations on what this means. Firstly, that it's voluntary. He says, who will offer willingly? Despite the Bible being so full of the commands of God, there are always, there's always this freedom that God wants people to give from out of the passion of their heart. He doesn't hold a gun to people's head. He wants them, just like in the Old Testament, they had all this sacrificial system, but there were these free will offerings. And I venture to guess that it was in the free will offerings that God saw the heart of men. Were they just going through the motions or did they, they want to give from their best to God? And so in the same way, David's calling and Jesus is calling. Will you make a decision? Because you don't stumble into service in Christ's kingdom. You must decide and offer willingly. That's the first thing, it's voluntary. Secondly, it's all-consuming. It's all-consuming, because when he says this phrase, consecrating himself, it literally says, and you might see it in your footnote there, fill his hands. Who will fill his hands today to the Lord? It's a kind of Hebrew expression that just carries this idea of, of being so completely occupied with this work that you can't carry anything else. Your hands are full. We use that today, don't we? My hands are full. Matthew Henry said this. He said, those who engage themselves in the service of God will have their hands full. There is, not, sorry, there is work enough for the whole man in that service. The filling of our hands with the service of God intimates that we must serve him only, serve him liberally, and serve him in the strength of grace derived from him. What it means is that to be consecrated in this way, it's not just attending is giving of your life in fellowship, in service, in generosity. And these are some of the things that are going to come out in the chapter as we unfold it. Fill your hands with this work. And lastly, it's voluntary, it's all-consuming, and it is priestly. The phrase, fill his hands, is usually used in the Bible about the ordination of priests. It's an expression which means that they're being ordained to the priesthood. Their hands are being filled. There's a number of passages that mean that. Why on earth am I drawing attention to that fact? Well, I think that there's a reason David chooses to use that expression. I think he's saying to people that to engage with the work of building God's temple... You're voluntarily becoming a priest in that household, in that temple. And the New Testament says about the church that we are, we are priests. 
It says in 1 Peter 2 that you are a holy priesthood. A couple of times it says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. What that means is that despite the unworthiness we've been talking about, it would be an impossibility for you or I to volunteer for the role of priest in God's temple. But the gospel and the grace of God that has plucked us from our unworthiness and then clothed us with the robes of Christ and made us righteous and given us dignity hasn't just brought us into the family, but has given us immense importance in the church of God. He has called you a priest. And that knowledge ought to shape your sense of who you are in God's temple. I don't know what you do when you come to church. How you prepare yourself, or if you prepare yourself in any way at all when you come to church. But do you realize that when you come, you come to minister as a priest in the temple of God? And that knowledge ought to shape the way you come, the manner in which you come, the consciousness of the authority and the responsibility that you carry before him. God has laid upon you the most dignified calling possible as a child of God to be a priest in his household and to minister his presence to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your calling on our lives is is bigger than we can imagine and more great than we could ever deserve. Lord, my prayer is we As you are forming a church here, my prayer is that you would put upon the hearts of these people a passion to serve you, a passion to be part of the building of your temple, a desire to offer our gifts and our abilities. And Lord, that you would so inhabit the work that you're doing here, that many people will come to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.